0: those of you that are remaining with us, I invite you to turn once again to the book of Galatians, to chapter 5, as we begin our last two chapters in Galatians, and we begin to see a change in the Apostle Paul's emphasis. If you would please stand with me, as we hear from God's Word, our text this morning is chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the Lord that is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. Galatians chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word from Paul. We thank You that it is addressed not only to the Galatians, but to us as well. And we pray, O Lord, that You would bless us by it. You would illumine our minds. And open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It's one of the favorite days of the year, especially for children. It's a day that's looked forward to, and oftentimes looked forward to, not because of the day itself or what it represents, but what happens on that day. No, it's not Christmas, it's the 4th of July, a day in which we remember and celebrate the freedom of our country, and for children especially, a day for big and loud fireworks. It's become a day of parades and a day of barbecues, and the fact that it occurs on July 4th becomes something of a hallmark because we sort of take for granted the liberties that we have. As a matter of fact, we have come to a point in our nation's history where freedom has ceased to mean freedom from oppression, freedom to have freedom of conscience, and it has become the land where you can't tell me what to do, ever. That's the kind of freedom that we experience. We see it even as we look in our bulletins today. It's taken to the extent of it has with respect to the life of the unborn. But you see, the Bible talks about freedom as well. And for the Bible, freedom is not primarily about a bill of rights. It's not primarily about what you can say in public or things you can write in the newspaper. It's not even about the freedom to worship the Lord God without threat of persecution or punishment. You see, the Bible is full of passages that speak of persecution because we worship the Lord God. No, for the Scriptures, freedom is primarily about something that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Freedom is so much more than momentary liberty. It is an eternal state into which the Lord Jesus Christ brings us. And so Paul begins now to exhort the Galatians. After he has given them a section of his own history and then moved on to give them the theology of justification and salvation, he's now moving into a section on ethics or how they should live. This shouldn't surprise us because every Pauline epistle breaks down that way. Who you are what you should believe, and what that means for your life. And Paul's beginning that now in chapter 5. And what we're going to see is what it means to be free at last. And the first thing that we will see is that freedom changes everything. Not just some things. It doesn't just make life more palatable. It changes everything. And then secondly, Paul will remind us that there is a danger to freedom. It's a danger that exists right now, this very day, even in America, in 2007. And then finally, Paul is going to exhort the Galatians, and you and me, to live free. Because we are free, we have to live free, and what that means with respect to the gospel. Well, let us then begin here by looking at chapter 5, verse 1, and see what it means to say that freedom changes everything. Look with me if you would. Paul says, recall the context, he's just given them a very difficult lesson. Perhaps some of you had some trouble following Paul's argument about mountains and cities and slave women and free women. He's just had a, a dissertation about freedom and slavery, and now he presses that example home. He says, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The first point that he makes might seem obvious, but we cannot pass it over. That point is that we are freed by Christ. We don't come into a state of freedom because of what we do, because of who we are. It's not something that comes to us by chance. Freedom comes to us because the Lord Jesus Christ brings it. And this is a magnificent and marvelous thing. If we think of all of the things that we are in bondage to before the Lord Jesus Christ sets us free. If you think of the great biblical themes, we are in bondage to sin. Romans 6 verse 22 describes this. And we have been freed from this bondage to sin by the death of Christ. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are servants to the Lord God. We are freed from serving our own lusts, grinding it out on the treadmill of despair. But it's not just freedom from sin. Paul has described that earlier. It's also freedom from death. Have you thought about that lately, Christian? In the midst of whatever difficulties you have, That the Christian need not fear the ultimate fear, death. Our society lives on fear of death. If any product could have any possible mortality rate of cancer, even infinitesimal, we seek to purge it from our midst. If there's any possibility of accident, we seek to purge it from our midst. Because we know death is something we don't have control over. And those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ live in fear, not knowing what comes after death. But you see, for the Christian, we have a sure word from the Lord that what comes after death is resurrection and life with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord doesn't just tell us this. No, we have been freed from bondage to death because we know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead. The resurrection is not just a story, not a fable. It is a fact in history that we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He has freed us from death. The Lord Jesus Christ has also freed us from the devil, from Satan himself. The author of the Hebrews puts this explicitly. He says that he has destroyed him who had the power over death. That is, the devil. Do you sometimes have difficulty in the weak... Perhaps in the quiet hours of the evening, when you're not reading your Bible, when there's no one to call and you feel like you are oppressed, you feel like you will never be free from sin, you feel like you're just not good enough, that no one really likes you, that no one really cares for you, if you have felt this way, then you have felt the attacks of Satan and his minions. Satan seeks to tell you you are not God's child. That you are not justified. That you really aren't of use. That you aren't a good parent. You aren't a good child. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ has destroyed the power of Satan by the cross. He has crushed the head of the serpent. You are freed from that burden because of what Jesus has done. This is marvelous freedom indeed. But we're not just freed from things external to ourselves. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that one thing that keeps us in bondage oftentimes, that we can never seem to get away from, is ourselves. We keep ourselves in bondage. As Paul says, we do that which we know we ought not to. And we don't do what we know we should It's like the old saying goes, wherever you go, there you are. You can't get away from yourself. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ has brought us freedom. It's what commentator John Stott calls memorably, freedom from my silly old self. To know that I'm not as important as I think I am that my decisions aren't as critical as I think they may be, that I can rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and know that He cares for me and He has freed me even from my own sinful inclinations. You see, this is completely contrary to our American version of freedom because our American version of freedom is simply, don't tell me what to do. I'm completely independent. I depend on no one. And then we're surprised when we're lonely. We're surprised when we don't have relationships with others. We're surprised when we don't have fulfillment. Because you see, that's not the real freedom we were made for. We were made for freedom to be with each other and the Lord God. And then finally, think through this. It is Jesus who frees us. Don't gloss over that obvious point. Paul says it is Christ who has freed us. It's not we who act, but Jesus. He is the subject of that verb. So oftentimes, we Christians are in despair because we think we must free ourselves from sin. We must do something to get to Jesus. But that's not what the Scripture says. It also shows us how important our freedom is to the Lord God. That He purchased it by the sacrifice of His Son. You see... The Gospel of John tells us that the Son shall set us free. And then we shall be free indeed. And that the truth, that is, the Word of God will set us free. We simply need to rest in our freedom. But we're not just freed by Christ, we're freed for a reason, Paul says. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. And if you looked at this with fresh eyes, you may have been confused and said, what does that mean? for freedom, we're free. But you see, Paul's making a point here. He's saying it's for the purpose or the goal of freedom that Jesus Christ has set us free. It's for our own freedom. That's why Jesus has freed us, so we might be freed from sin. We might be freed from death, so that we might never taste death, so that we can have victory over the devil. That is why Jesus has freed us. That was his purpose in mind. It's also for freedom for others, for we have a message. And what is that message? It's a message to others who are captive that they can be set free in Jesus Christ. We have a message of liberty. It is for freedom. You see, salvation does not make us complacent. We cannot sit on our freedom. We might argue and have a discussion with respect to foreign policy, and what we should do with democracies, and what we should do intervening with other nations. But not so with the freedom we have in Christ. The Bible is explicit. We are to take the good news of the gospel and make disciples of all nations. We cannot keep this freedom to ourselves. Contrast this with what false teachers do. Peter tells us in his second letter that those who are in bondage to their own sin seek to bring others into bondage. They don't proclaim liberty to the captives. They proclaim bondage. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 2 and chapter 4. He says that the false brothers slipped in, that they might bring us into slavery. They slipped in to spy out our freedom so that they could squash it. That's not the work of the gospel. But you see, Paul then begins to move to something that perhaps might make us uncomfortable. We can hear the news of the gospel, that it is good to be free, and that Jesus has freed us, and there's nothing that we can do to be in that state. But Paul says, because of who you are in Christ, because of what Jesus Christ has done, freedom requires a commitment. You notice what his next sentence is? Stand firm. That's a command christian we're going to see a lot of them now in the next two chapters paul says because of who you are you must stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery he says you have to be watchful of this freedom you have to stand firm in the faith he says you must strive you must work not to be free but because you are free But it's more than that. He says, don't burden yourself down. Because you're free, don't take a yoke upon yourself. You don't want to be slaves again. You must be watchful because you don't want to be loaded down to submit again. The word that's used there in the Greek is actually describing being loaded down with something. Weighed down with a burden. A yoke that's placed around us so that it's difficult to move restrictions. This is what freedom is. It changes everything. And then Paul gives us a warning in verse 2. Now, if you are looking down, it's a bit jarring, isn't it? Look, I, Paul, me, over here, nobody else. Earlier he had said, we are saying to you, and Paul and those who are with me, now he says, look, wait a minute here. And everybody would, what do you mean, Paul? Paul wants their attention. This is important. He says, there's a danger to freedom. There's a danger for looking for life in all the wrong places. There's an old, not so good country song, looking for love in all the wrong places. If that's bad enough, how bad would it be to look for life in all the wrong places? And that's oftentimes what we do. He says, first, you can't look for life outside of Christ. He says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's going to start really hammering this point home. He's explicitly laying out the problem of circumcision and looking to that as a work that can be done to be justified before God. He says, listen, even in the most religious setting, If you look for life outside of Jesus Christ, you will not find it. I don't care if you go to church morning and evening and Wednesday and Bible study. If you are looking for life outside of Christ, you will not find it. You must look for life in Christ. He's putting it this way. Calvin says it well. He says, if you want Christ, you must have all of him or none of him. You can't have part of him. You can't take Jesus and have something else. You won't find life there. You must have all of a Savior. But we don't just look for life outside of Christ, do we? We look for life as debtors to the law. Paul says that the Galatians are trying to submit again to a yoke of slavery. And he again uses strong language. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, there's an irony here that we can miss. In Paul's day, the Jews used to refer to the law as the yoke of the commandments. The yoke of heaven. They used to refer to the law as the yoke that brought them to heaven. And they denied what Paul said here, many of them. As a matter of fact, some of them went so far as to say, if a man did one good deed, he did enough in the law to earn eternal salvation and life. But you see, the scriptures don't say that. So much so that there were other rabbis. There's a famous rabbi, a rabbi Gamaliel, who read Ezekiel 18. And after he went through all the requirements, he began to weep uncontrollably. Because he said, it says I have to do all of these things. Not one of these things. I can't do this. Isn't that sometimes how we feel? Especially as we look to the requirements of the law and the scriptures. And we see how broad the scriptures are. But you see, there is a yoke of slavery. We realize that we must keep the whole law. Not only Paul says this, James says it as well. Paul and James are in complete harmony. James says that if we keep the whole law but break it at one point, we are liable of the judgment. You see, keeping the law is not like a driver's test. Some of you may have just taken one. Others of you may have been a little while ago. You know how that goes? The first thing in your mind is, how many mistakes can I make and still pass? If I forget to turn on the blinker, but I parallel park right, do I make it? You see, the law is not like that. The law says, if you are perfect and you forget to turn on the blinker once, you fail, and you know what? You don't get a retest. You never drive again. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. We must keep all the law. And so looking for there is looking for life at all the wrong places, obviously. But there's something else here that we see in terms of dangers to the law. We see there is a danger of being cut off. Look at what Paul says here. He uses very strong language. He says, listen, if you're looking for life in the wrong places, you are, verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You see, Paul is talking here about a relationship with God. There are some who go on and on at length and try and pull every statement they can out of context from Calvin or a church father or someone to say, well, what Galatians is really about is Jews and Gentiles getting together. It's not really about justification. It's not really about a personal relationship with the Lord. And they'll denigrate that and say, that's not really important. But you see, it's obvious in Paul's words. He doesn't say you won't be a part of the people of God. He doesn't say you won't have table fellowship. He doesn't say you'll be miserable. He says you'll be severed from Christ. He's speaking in relational terms to God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word here for severed is the same word that's used in chapter 3, verse 17. When he says, This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. It means it doesn't make it ineffectual. What Paul's saying is, if you seek to be justified by the law, by circumcision, you have made the death of Christ ineffectual for you. You have denigrated the work. Of Jesus Christ and said, it's not sufficient. And what that means is that we have fallen away from grace. Now, I want you to notice two things here. Words are important in the scriptures. It doesn't say, you who are justified by the law. It says, you who would be justified by the law. In other words, we might even translate it this way. You who think you can be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. This is not something that's happened yet. Paul sees them. It's as if he's hearing their conversations. And instead of talking about the gospel, they're talking about Jewish feasts. Instead of talking about witnessing and coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They're talking about how neat circumcision is. And how great it shows the covenant. And he says, you're walking down the wrong road. And so God in his grace gives a stern warning to the Galatians. He says, you're going down the wrong road. You haven't gone there yet. Stop. He makes a clear warning. And he says... You are leaving the place where grace is found. You see, he's not suggesting here that one can be saved and then be unsaved. That one could be justified by faith and then somehow be unjustified. He's saying, if you would be justified by law, then you're not even in the same ballpark of where grace is found. As a matter of fact, we might say, based on what we looked at last week, you, like the Judaizers, ought to get out of town. Get out of the church. Stop teaching what you're teaching. Stop dragging people down. Stop taking people astray. The place where grace is found is not those who would be justified by the law, but those who would be justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a warning. The danger to freedom is not just that we look for life in the wrong places, but that we would be cut off from the place where grace is found. But what does all this mean? This seems relatively familiar to what Paul has been saying to us about being justified by faith and by grace and not by works. Let's look at the last two verses, where Paul now begins to make very practical application. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith, We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The first thing that Paul says is that those who are free, those who have been freed by Christ for freedom's sake, (coughs) freed people have hope. You need to act as if you have hope. You need to look to that hope because free people have hope. Look at what he says. He says, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This is actually one of the few times that Paul uses the word hope in Galatians. He uses it much more when he addresses the Corinthians. He speaks about faith and love, but here he completes that, that triad, those three Christian virtues of faith and love and hope. And he says, we eagerly wait for this hope of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're not sure we can be righteous, that we're hoping that somehow God will make us righteous? No, because it's a sure hope. How do we get to this hope? It is through the Spirit, isn't it? It's not something we conjure up on our own. It's not something that we need to somehow feel. It's the work of God in our midst. The hope that we have is the work of God, of the Holy Spirit. And it's a hope of righteousness toward which that righteousness points. The Christian has a hope of an eternal life of holiness and righteousness and blamelessness with. The Lord Himself. This is the hope that we look forward to. The hope that we press on toward. The hope that we don't allow anything else to draw our gaze aside from. This is what we press on to. Now again, we need to be careful. There is a supposed reform minister who when asked, Well, what's the hope for the Christian? He said, well, it's to be as faithful as we can to God's commands and let the chips fall where they may. That's something I want to hear on my deathbed or when my child's in the hospital. I could give you a lot of gobbledygook to go around that. But one thing we can say for certain is that's not the gospel. The gospel is that because of the work of the Holy Spirit, In free people, freed by Christ, we have a hope of righteousness. And it's not just a hope that we're lackadaisical about. See what Paul says. He says we eagerly await. We don't just wait. You know the difference, don't you, between waiting and eagerly awaiting, right? Kids, perhaps you had this happen this morning. You got up. Got ready, and perhaps because mom and dad had other things to do, you were ready before them, before they went to church. And so you waited in the car or by the front door to get ready to go. Too short of a period of time to do anything, too long to be quick. Looking at your watch, right? Parents, we had that too. There are things that we wait for. But that's not like waiting for something that we know is going to happen and is going to be incredible, is it? We don't confuse waiting for the bus with waiting on our birthday to open up our presents, do we? It's a different kind of waiting. You see, Paul says that's the kind of waiting that free people do. It's a waiting of eagerness. It's like the kind of waiting that creation itself has to be free from the groaning of sin. It wants to be free from sin. It's actually the kind of waiting that the Christian should have when he's waiting to see the Lord Jesus Christ again. That's the kind of eager expectation. It's a hope that is sure and that produces an eager anticipation. We can't wait to get there. It's like Paul says, it would be far better to be with the Lord. I'm eager to go and be with the Lord, but now it is needful for me to be with you. The Christian does not fear his end because he has an eager anticipation. He is a person with hope. But freed people don't just have hope, freed people are different and they act different, Paul says. He says, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. He says, free people have the Spirit. They're different. And he's going to describe for us what that means in detail when he tells us the fruit of the Spirit. And so for now, I'll just wet your appetite with that. What that means is, Freed people have joy, they have peace, they have patience, they have kindness. This is what freed people look like. They have the fruit of the Spirit. You see, freedom is not really a fruit of the Spirit. Freedom lets us know we have the Spirit, and then we get the fruit of the Spirit. It's in this freedom that the Spirit operates, But it's not just that freed people are different because they have the Spirit. They are freed and they are in Christ. Now what does that mean? Let me illustrate it for you this way, of how important it means to be in Christ. You may recall that in Sunday school we were looking at Paul's passage in 1 Corinthians 9 where he spoke of being all things to all men and how he was going to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. Now, do you remember that one of the things he said is, to the Jews I became what? As a Jew. Now, you might scratch your head and say, wait a minute, Paul. Um, Tribe of Benjamin, check. Circumcised the eighth day, check. Pharisee, check. Knows the law, check. Paul, hate to break this to you, you're a Jew. You have all the markers of a Jew, Paul. You grew up in a Jewish household, Paul. You learned the Torah, Paul. What are you talking about? Does that strike you as odd? It will until you think about the fact that Paul counted being in Christ as being so radical a change that he didn't even reckon himself a Jew anymore. His reality, his identity, was being in Christ. Your reality is not being an American. Your ultimate reality is not even being a man or a woman. Your ultimate reality is not being a person who likes baseball as opposed to football. Or knitting as opposed to crochet. Or farming as opposed to mechanics. Your ultimate reality is that you are in Christ. And everything else is subservient to that. That makes you different. And I have said this before and I will say it again. That gives you more in common with the person the person right now worshipping in a basement in China than it does with your next door neighbor. If the reality is that you are both in Christ... That is what reality is about. It is about being in Christ. And Paul understood this. It changes who you are. So much so that he could say that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Three times in the Scriptures, Paul will say things pretty much the same way. If you flip over a page, he'll say it in chapter 16 chapter 6 verse 15 he says for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation you notice how paul does that he it's not that circumcision isn't important it's that compared to the new creation it's nothing compared to faith working by love or through love it's nothing He'll say it in 1 Corinthians as well. He'll say that this avails nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. You see, the reality for Paul is in being in Christ. This is how free people are different. Now, we know this intuitively, but the Bible makes it clear for us. People that are different act different. Isn't that true? What we can tell someone's different by their actions. And Paul says that here. He says, what matters is faith working through love. You see, he says, free people love. This is not an option. This is not for second-tier Christianity. This is not, well, I'll get all the doctrine, Paul, and I'll stop there. You can't. He says, faith works Through love. Now, why would that be? Well, it's because the sum of the law, isn't it? The sum of righteousness is love. And if we are people who are accounted as having fulfilled all the law's demands through Jesus Christ, we would be a people who love, who follow the sum of the law. You see, love is the primary fruit of the Spirit. Look there in chapter 5 and verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? What's the very first word? Love. You see, that's how free people act. We are empowered by the Spirit because the Spirit sheds love abroad in our hearts, Paul says in Romans 5. This is Paul agreeing with James. There is no conflict. You see, it does not say faith and love justify us. Paul never says we are justified by love. He says it's faith working through love. True faith alone justifies. But true faith is never alone. You see, it's the difference between a requirement and an evidence or a consequence. You see, you have faith to get justified. And once you are justified, you know that your faith is a faith that truly justifies because faith looks over and sees love. Working along. It's an evidence of true faith. And Paul says that's how true faith works. It works with love. This is what Paul says to the Galatians. He says you have freedom, and it's for freedom's sake that Christ has set you free. You need to be careful because there are dangers out there. And one of the ways to remind yourself is to act like free people. Thinking back to our 4th of July, we may say to ourselves... The Christian life is not like a parade. It's not something we watch and sort of remember that something happened and that gives us a day off of work. The freedom that we have affects us today in our marriages, in our jobs, with our children, with our neighbors. Because that freedom that comes by faith, works through love. And we are called to be a people who show love to others. That's what Paul says. He's warning the Galatians, saying you're getting off track. You're forgetting faith. You're forgetting love. You're seeking to be bound. Don't do it. He's encouraging them on, we might say, to love and good deeds, as the Scripture says. And so this is the call, not just for the Galatians, but for us, to rest in Jesus Christ today, to await the glorious hope for what is to come. Because for freedom's sake, the Lord Jesus Christ has set us free. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have freed us. You have freed us from sin and from death and from the devil. And we thank you, O Lord, that you have done it by the work of your Son. We pray that you would continue to remind us of this, that we might rest in our freedom, that we might rest in the work of Christ, that we might show love to others because of the Spirit's work in our heart. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.